0: All right, take your Bible and turn to John 21. John 21. And I'll start in verse 15 and read to the end of the chapter. John chapter 21, verse 15. So when they'd finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter... Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs. He said again to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And and, and uh, he said uh, to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, Tend my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grew old, you know, when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now he said this, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when Peter had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple uh, whom Jesus loved following them, the one who had also leaned back on his breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, therefore, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, and what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is this to you? You follow me this saying, therefore, went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, only if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who bears witness of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his witness is true. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books in which are written. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we're so thankful for an opportunity to to worship you and to praise you and to sing uh, songs to you. We're so thankful to come and study your word. And and we pray, Lord, that you would uh, guide our thoughts as we study your word and open our hearts and that our love for you would increase because of our time uh, spent with you this morning in, in this 24th chapter of the book of John. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it is a monumental morning this morning as we come to our study here in the book of John because this is the end of our study in this gospel. 150 sermons, over 150 sermons. I think it's been a tremendously encouraging time together and I hope you have been encouraged and blessed by our time in this gospel account. It's going to be hard to let it go because we have spent so much time in it together and we've learned so much about our dear Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and there's much more that we could glean out of the passages and the pages of this text, this gospel and God's Word, and it's my hope that our time together in it will have encouraged your heart to look back and study it even more and even more in depth. Now, the truth is, with the material that I just read, the material that's in front of us, we could stretch it out a bit. There's enough material that we could run some helpful, I think, Uh, tangents, if you will, uh, on on some of the subject matter. But primarily, the last section here really has to deal with Peter, and specifically Christ's restoration uh, with Peter, really Peter's uh, rest—the Lord's restoration of of the Apostle Peter. So to kind of keep with the issue— Uh, I just kind of sense it's time just to wrap it up. And this is, again, the last week of our college students before they go off on break. And I wanted them to hear the conclusion of the book before they left. So there's always much more that could be said. Though for the moment we're just going to let it stand uh, as it is. This is going to be our last time in this study of uh, John's Gospel. Now, if you will remember, last Lord's Day we met, we studied through the first 14 verses of the, of the chapter. Jesus has manifested himself to the disciples at the Sea of Galilee, the Sea of Tiberias, and there were two major issues that I brought to your attention. Uh, The first has to do with whether or not Peter and the disciples are, the other six guys have gone off into gross sin and disobedience uh, uh, against the Lord by going fishing. Verse 3. Uh, Simon uh, Peter said to them I'm going fishing and they said to him oh, we're going to come with you and they went out and got in the boat and all night they caught nothing and, and I explained to you their commentators are really divided over, over this issue There's a whole group of people that say that Peter and the other fellows have abandoned the call to ministry and then they're going back to their old profession in disobedience. Uh, The activity is a wholesale departure from what Christ has told them to do. Again, Peter especially is walking in disobedience. He's the guy that kind of led the charge to do this. He's turning back to the world and turning back to his worldly calling. And then those who hold that position would list some evidences they feel or lines of reasoning that they uh, would give from the text to support that view. But then on the other side, there's uh, those who don't take that view whatsoever. Uh, They would say there's nothing inherently wrong with fishing, and um, Peter and his companions just need to work in order to provide for themselves, provide for their sustenance. And and it's only natural for them to be involved in the activity that uh, they're familiar with, the business that they were most familiar because they have a desire to eat. And on top of that, now, the Great Commission hasn't been given, nor has the person of the Holy Spirit come and permanently been poured out upon them, empowering them for ministry. So there's inherently nothing wrong with this whole activity of fishing. And as I told you, I don't really think there's enough compelling evidence to make a dogmatic uh, assertion on one side or the other is, of the issue. I tend to lean uh, against the idea that these men are walking in gross disobedience, abject rebellion, and sin against the Lord. I think they're just fishing. That's how I would take it. And they don't catch anything because the reality is if you've ever gone fishing, sometimes you don't catch anything. I don't see not catching any fish as some kind of an act of divine punishment against them because of the rebellion. I don't think that's the issue. I think the issue is the fact that the Lord provides for them. He provides miraculously for their needs. Because that shows here even in his post-resurrection appearances, he still cares for them. The relationship that he has with them is unchanged. Uh, He is still with them. He fellowships with them. He cares for them. Uh, He loves them. Uh, His compassion towards them has not changed. And then the second issue that we dealt with is the great error that has been made uh, with this text and others, uh, seeking to spiritualize or allegorize the meaning of a text. And I gave you some examples of the absurdities that men have put forward uh, over the years to deal with the issue of the fact that they caught 153 fish. Why did they catch 153 fish? Because they didn't catch... 154 fish, or 152 fish, right? They just caught 153 fish. There's all kinds of ridiculous uh, uh, things that men write, and this week, to my surprise, I found even more. Uh, I won't go into them because they're just not helpful. Uh, they are ridiculous. Again, the problem is when you spiritualize the text or allegorize the meaning of the plain historical facts of God's Word, then you turn the Bible into a book of riddles, which is useless to the common man, and it's only useful to those who have a very fertile and fanciful imagination, as J.C. Rowell has pointed out. And as I've told you repeatedly, God wants to be known. And God reveals himself to men through his word. And words mean something. And the Holy Spirit is good enough of a communicator to communicate through the pen of human authors to convey to men what God wants them to know. You do not need a super secret decoder ring to figure out the meaning of the word of God. And when we set aside the plain meaning of the text or the plain meaning of the words on the page and look for some kind of, uh, again, secret spiritualized meaning of the text, then we do a great disservice to the Word of God. And I think we need to be very careful about not doing that here or anywhere else for that matter in the Word of God. When the plain meaning uh, of the text makes sense, it probably would serve you no purpose to look for any other meaning. God wants to communicate. Now, these men, again, in the context of the story, they fished all night. They haven't got a thing. At the moment, when they're out there off the shore about 100 yards, they don't recognize who it is that's standing there on the shore. Again, not because they're in sin and God is judging them. They just don't recognize him. It's 100 yards away. It's The, the, the dawn's coming up. It's difficult for them to see. So the person on the on the shore instructs them to let down the net on the right hand of the boat, and they do what they're told, and they catch, uh, catch a fish that is so large they're not able to haul it in because of the, of the great number of the fish. And John perceives immediately when this happens that it's the Lord who's there on the bank. And then he makes that exclamation, it's the Lord. And Peter, obviously excited, jumps into the uh, the water and swims to the shore to meet the Lord. The Lord has a fire going there on the shore. He's making breakfast. He's got fish and bread uh, ready for them to supply their needs. They've been working all night long, and they've not caught anything up to this moment. And they're hungry. Now, when breakfast is over, uh, the Lord is going to enter into a discussion or a discourse with Peter. And he's going to call Peter to faithfulness. And while the context of the story is the Lord speaking to Peter and directing him in an effort to bring him back into a restored relationship because it's vital for him to be restored publicly because he fell publicly, right? He he was disobedient publicly. The Lord has a call on Peter's life, and, and this restoration has to be seen amongst the other apostles because of this public restoration or this public ministry that the Lord's going to call Peter to, to carry out uh, in the early uh, um, years of, of the of the church, right? It's critical to the gospel. It's critical after the Lord's ascension, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Again, the opening book of Acts, Peter's going to play a great role at the beginning of the church as the gospel goes out first to the Jews. So while the Lord is making a specific call and a specific directed discussion at Peter, nonetheless the principles that the Lord gives to Peter are really principles that I think belong to or that really apply to all believers in their relationship to Christ. And and again, if you're going to be a faithful follower of Christ, Peter, if you're going to be a faithful follower of Christ, you who are sitting in the room. So here, Here are the principles. You need to love him, and you need to love him more than anything else. You need to love him more than anything or anyone else. Number two, you need to be willing to sacrifice for him. You need to love him more than anything or anyone else. You need to be able to sacrifice all for him. And then number three, the truthful or the faithful follower of Christ is going to follow him in obedience, Going to follow him in obedience so love sacrifice and obedience that's the three main issues that make up the follower uh, of the faithful follower of the person of Jesus Christ now those words are easy to say but in reality uh, to carry them out uh, always is not very easy uh, to love Christ is not always uh, easy to sacrifice for Christ is not always easy to be obedient to Christ is not always easy but that's the call To follow Christ, to to total self denial. One commentator notes this, he says, The gospel calls sinners to submit fully to Jesus Christ, to find their lives by losing them, and to gain their lives by abandoning them, and to live life to the fullest by emptying themselves. The truth is Jesus never made it easy to follow him. We we tend to do that in our culture, but Jesus never made it easy to follow him. He made it hard. Because he didn't want to contribute to this false sense of, uh, of assurance or a false sense of salvation. Uh, again, Jesus says in Matthew 7, verse 13, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many are those who enter by it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And what? Few are those who find it. There's all kinds of religious people in the world. All kinds of people entering by the wide gate, all the worldly religions and worldly ideologies. The gate is small, the way is narrow, that leads to life, and few are those who find it. Matthew 10, verse 38, he does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. Luke 9, 23, he was saying to all of them, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 9, verse 62, Jesus said to them, no one after putting his hand to the plow, looking back is fit for the kingdom. Jesus never made it easy. And there's no easy believism with with Jesus Christ. He demands all of you. Again, one writer said this, Jesus does not offer sinners a superficial makeover to satisfy their desire for self-improvement. He calls them to submit to a complete takeover of their lives for his glory with eternal benefits. He calls them to submit to a complete takeover of their lives for the glory of Christ. That's the call. And again, Jesus, again, he didn't make it easy. He made it difficult. He always warned that those who wanted to come after him must be willing to die. They must be willing to die. They must count the cost of coming to him. Luke chapter 14, verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father or mother or wife or children or brothers or sisters, and yes, even his own life, cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid the foundation is not able to finish it, all those who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sits out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and take counsel whether whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else what other, uh, while well, the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks terms of peace. Verse 33 says, So therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his possessions uh, again he's, Jesus is saying look you need to count the cost you need to count the cost because being a genuine follower of the person of Jesus Christ is not easy and it's going to cost you it could cost you your relationship with people in your own family it could cost you your job it could cost you your possessions it could cost you your very life it could lead to your death your faithful following of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and really the call to follow Christ is, is to be, become his slave, to abandon all of your hopes and dreams and desires and control over your own life and become a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ in the strictest sense of that word. You are no longer your own. You have been bought with a price. Now what's going to motivate somebody to do that? What would motivate somebody to abandon all to follow the person of the Lord Jesus Christ? The only answer to that is what? Love. The only answer is love. A genuine, intense love. That's what marks a genuine believer, a genuine, intense love for the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 15. So when they finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my lambs. Now, again, for for Peter to be used as the Lord intends him to be the beginning of the church, he needs to be publicly restored. They finish breakfast, they're standing around there at the, the charcoal fire on uh, which the Lord has made the meal on. And certainly you'd have to think, standing around that fire, uh, Peter's mind would have been taken back to another fire uh, that he'd just been recently standing around. Uh, around. That would be outside the high priest's residence on the night that Jesus was arrested. And on that night that Jesus was arrested, it's cold outside, and Peter's with a number of other men that are huddled around that fire, some of them the temple guard. And there in that courtyard, uh, uh, Peter is confronted by a young doormaiden and, and asks whether or not he was one of Jesus' disciples, and Peter denies it. And then by that fire, there one of the guards also recognizes Peter and said to him out of Luke 22, verse 58, are, You are one of them too, but Peter said, Man, I am not. And after about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly this man was with him, for he is a Galilean too. Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately while he was still speaking, the cock crowed. Verse 61, And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord and how he told him, Before a cock crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Now Peter had previously, repeatedly made declarations of his unfeeling love and devotion for the person of Lord Jesus Christ. and Again, he's done it more than once. Again, there in the upper room, the last supper, when the Lord knew that an hour for him to depart was at hand. And uh, he had humbled himself. The Lord did humble himself, stoop down, and wash the feet of his disciples. Uh, again, the Lord's saying he's about to depart. And Peter says, well, I'll come with you. And the Lord says, look, you can't come with me now, but you can come with me later. Peter said, John 3, uh, 13, verse 37, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you? Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I said to you, a cock shall not crow until you deny me three times. Over in Matthew chapter 26, Peter made a similar boast. Peter answered and said to him, even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. But the truth is, when things became difficult, Peter failed. Talks cheap. Especially when you're faced with a threatening situation but it's here at Peter's failure that the great mercy and and grace of uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ comes out most significantly it's interesting back in Luke chapter 22 before these events unfold uh, obviously uh, Luke 22 verse 31 it says Simon Simon behold Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat but i have prayed for you that your faith may not fail and when and you when once you have turned again strengthen your brethren so again, the idea is that the Lord knows, right? The Lord knows all things. He knows Peter's heart. He knows that Peter is going to have certain situations that are going to come up, and he's going to fail him. But the Lord, again, knew in the kindness, uh, in, in his great kindness, the need to show Peter of the worthlessness of self-confidence. The Lord knew that he needed to show Peter the worthlessness of his own self-confidence, that really Peter needed to go through his experiences to be humbled, to be humbled of his proud spirit. Because uh, the denial of Christ would be that very event that would actually expose Peter's worthless self-confidence. And Peter's reply to the Lord again when he says, look, the, Satan has come to demand to sift you. Uh, in uh, Luke 22, verse 33, is Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Right? I mean, <laughs> the Lord's saying, look, you got some serious problems here and on a spiritual level. Satan's after you. I can do it. You know, I, I can handle it. And, uh, and uh, foolishly self-confident. But again, the Lord knew. The Lord knew it all. He knew that Peter was going to fall away, going to betray him. And so again, he tells him in advance, I'm praying for you. And then once you have turned, again, once you have repented, once you have moved away from this dangerous self-confidence, you're going to serve my purposes. You're going to be strengthened, and you will strengthen my brothers. Now again, that's obviously a great danger for us all, isn't it? Self-confidence. A great... Uh, demonstration of the mercy of christ is uh, at uh, display here in peter's life uh, and, and and we're all in danger of self-confidence and we're all much in need of of god's mercy in our life and i think it's really interesting in the mercy of christ here there's not one word of condemnation in, in peter's restoration not one word of condemnation not even a question not even that question why did you even deny me peter never even asked those questions there's just nothing in this interaction between Peter and, the, and, and Christ, nothing but an outpouring of grace towards this man, Peter. And this man, Peter, again, who publicly boasted and then publicly denied his Lord Jesus Christ, again, it needs to be publicly restored. And both Peter and the other disciples need to hear the affirmation of the love of Christ and, and Christ's recommissioning of him. So, again, they'd be loyal. They'd support Peter and his leadership there in the early church. And so what Jesus is going to do in this confrontation or interaction with Peter is really, he's going to ask him a question. It's a repeated question, whether or not he loved him. And he's going to ask it three times, once for each time that Peter publicly had denied the person of Jesus Christ. So again, verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John. Now here's where some commentators would say, You know, this is kind of a mild rebuke of the Lord against Peter uh, because he changed his name from Simon, given the nickname Peter, which means stone. But when Simon often uh, deferred back or went back to who he used to be before Christ entered his life, uh, when he needed a wake-up call, you're acting like the old man, uh, the Lord would use the word, go back to use and call him Simon. So Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now the question becomes, what does these actually refer to? And again, those who take the position that Peter and the disciples are in great sin because they've gone back to fishing and abandoned the ministry, they would say these belong to, that, that word belongs to the boat. It refers to the boat, the nets, what other kind of paraphernalia you need to use to go fishing. But on the other hand, those who would not take that position, this is a great falling back into sin, would say when the Lord asked that question of Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Those who hold that position would say that these really is a reference to the other men. Do you love me more than these, these other other disciples, these other apostles that are gathered here around the fire? And that would be my understanding of the word these. Do you love me more than these other men that are standing around here with us? Again, by asking the question, uh, the Lord is referring back to the great boasting that Peter had made uh, previously that he would remain true. Even if these other guys didn't do that, right? Even if all the other disciples failed, he would never do that, right? Uh, uh, Peter insisted he would never fall, but he did. He fell away and he did it very publicly. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these, again, other men? Uh, Again, some have suggested perhaps the Lord is asking the question in the context of the story because who's the guy that jumped out of the boat? It's Peter, right? He wants to get to the Lord so fast. He jumps out of the boat. The other guys are still rolling to shore. But Peter swims to, to uh, to the shore to get to Jesus faster than the other disciples. So Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Now, right here, if you're familiar, and I'm sure you are with the story, many commentators have said, look, the key to understanding the questions and the answers that Peter gives are uh, found in the different Greek words that are used in this passage for love. When Jesus asked, do you love me more than these, Jesus uses the word agapao, which is the verb form of the word agape, and when uh, that, uh, which is said to refer to the highest uh, form of love, divine love, a, a love that... Uh, Uh, displays or refers to total commitment. And Peter, again, painfully aware of his uh, disobedience and failure, he feels too guilty to claim that type of love. Therefore, he uses a different word, phileo. It's a less lofty term than agape, agape, uh, but it's a term that still signifies affection, uh, a form of love really uh, involving friendship. And Peter said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. You know that I'm affectionate towards you like a friend, and kind of a loose paraphrase. Again, he's full of guilt, full of remorse. Uh, he couldn't legitimately make a claim to a higher form of love. Uh, James Boyce has an interesting um, suggestion that I think is at least helpful. It kind of helps us uh, see the, the word here a little bit better, the effect of the exchange. Uh, he would say that when Peter refers to the first love, when 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 uh, 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 when when the word agape is used, it's love at a hundred percent level. And and when the second love is used, the phileo, it's love at a 60% level. I think that's helpful because it kind of gives you a little bit of a a visual picture of what's going on. Simon, son of John, do you love me with a hundred percent love? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you with 60% love. And again, the Lord, the first two times the Lord asks the question, he again says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Verse 16, he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So when Jesus asked the question, he uses the word agape, 100% love. And when Peter answers the question twice, he uses the other word phileo, 60% kind of love. And then verse 17, it changes. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? But this time... The Lord uses the second word. He uses the word phileo. The word Peter had been using, that 60% kind of love. And then again, verse 17, he says, Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? And the the reason that Peter is grieving is because the Lord used the same word that Peter used for love, phileo. And he's really, the, the Lord's really calling into question that even less than total devotion kind of love, that Peter thought he was safe in declaring. It's not 100%, I can't say that, it's about 60%. And then the third time, the Lord asked the question, do you really even love me to that level? And that's what caused uh, Peter's heart to be broken. Jesus said to him a third time, do you love me? And again, Peter using the word phileo, uh, uh, Peter, again, answered using the word phileo, meaning that Peter just can't bring himself to the to the uh, stronger form of love word, uh, agape. He's still overcome with guilt and grief because of his public sin and denial of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, you know that I love you. Now, that's kind of the common approach. There are some modern commentators, and D.A. Carson, if you're familiar with him, he'd be one of them, that have suggested perhaps there's a problem with that approach. That's the one that's been used forever, but some modern commentators, again, like Dia Carson, say, look, it's a problem to focus solely on the two words. Uh, Because according to them, John seems to use those two words for love, agape and phileo, more or less interchangeably. And while it's true that the two words have different meanings, uh, it's suggested that perhaps John doesn't tend to use them in that technical sense. For instance, uh, when he's referring to himself as the disciple whom the Lord loved... John uses agape in one instance and then phileo in another, which is kind of interesting. And moreover, John tends to vary his vocabulary for stylistic reasons. And the passage that's just been recounted, the conversation here has probably occurred in Aramaic, not in Greek. And there's two different words for love, two different words for knowing, two different words for the idea of tending Jesus's sheep. Therefore, most scholars today would say that the key to really understanding the question lies not in the differences between agape and phileo and John's usage they would suggest the issue or the key to understanding in the question it has to do with the fact of the repetition of the question that's the issue It's the, the question is being repeated the Lord is probing the depth of Peter's love he's really probing the depth of Peter's being he's not being cruel but he's really trying to get Peter, to stop, take a breath for a moment and think. Do you really love me? Do you really love me? Now, I don't know. I I think the second uh, view here has some validity to it. Again, the one that most modern scholars uh, tend to, to move towards. Simon Peter, do you really love me? And again, the question is repeated three times. And again, so often as we do, we read the text and go, yeah, yeah, okay, here's my opinion. Okay, but why is it there? Maybe the question, again, is not Simon Peter. Maybe the question is us in the room. Maybe the application for you, for me, for all of us, this moment, everyone who's listening, maybe the question is, do you really love the Lord Jesus Christ? It's a simple, but it's a searching question. The Lord didn't ask Peter, nor does he ask us, do you believe? Are you converted? Are you one of the elect? Are you born again? Are you indwelt with the person of the Holy Spirit? Are you sanctified? Are you justified? Those are all good questions, and they need to be answered. But the question that's being asked here at the moment, this searching question, is one's love. Simon Peter, do you really love me? And again, for you and I who are listening this morning, do you really love the Lord Jesus Christ? Talk is cheap. Because the truth is, no man can ever serve the Lord Jesus Christ unless he is deeply in love with him. John Calvin once said, no man will steadily preserve in the discharge of his ministry unless a love for Christ shall reign in his heart. What causes men to give up all and follow Christ? What, gives, what, causes all, what causes men to sacrifice their life and the history of the church for the cause of Christ, to suffer persecution? It has to be related to their love for the Savior. Again, verse 15, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Again, it's an affirmation of divine omniscience on Peter's part. Peter's confessing the fact the Lord is God. He knows everything. And omniscience is really not something to be feared, but omniscience is a real blessing because the Lord, listen, the Lord knows everything about you. The Lord knows everything about you. He knows everything about us. He knows our hearts. He knows where we're at. How are you doing this morning? Answer? Fine. I'm just fine. Well, that's probably not true. That's probably not true, because most people aren't fine. The Lord knows, though. The Lord knows everything about us. He knows when we sit and we stand. He knows that the words are going to come off our mouth before we say a, a, a syllable. He knows everything. You know that I love you. Now, again, Peter, like Peter, when we don't demonstrate our love for the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, I, I think this omniscience is so encouraging, because... You know that I love him. How, how do we know? How does the Lord know that we love him? We know that the Lord knows we love him because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us, right? First John 4, 19. It's an appeal to the sovereignty of Christ. It's an appeal to his omniscience. It's an appeal to the fact that he has loved us before the foundation of the world. I know it doesn't go into all that kind of theological discourse, but that's what he's saying. He says, Lord, I know. You know that I love you. You know I love you because you're the one who called me to you in the first place. Simon Peter, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my lambs. It's the word bosco, the word tend, feed. Uh, It's a present tense verb. It's the word use of a herdsman pastoring, feeding uh, their livestock. Again, present tense, continual action. So keeping up with the metaphor that the Lord introduced back in chapter 10 uh, of John, where Peter describes believers as his lambs, uh, emphasizing, again, lambs, they're, they're immature, they're vulnerable, they're in need. And also the fact that they belong to him. Tend my lambs. These are mine. Tend my lambs. And again, the great responsibility that every under-shepherd under must acknowledge that is ever before us is that if we want to be faithful to the supreme shepherd, then we've got to take care of his sheep. They are his sheep. Believers are his sheep. They belong to him. Every person who's part of the body of Christ in the church, every person has been purchased by him. We we shepherd the church of God that he purchased with his own blood. It's a very high calling, a very high responsibility. And the primary responsibility of the pastor that is called to tend or to uh, uh, lead God's flock is to feed them upon the word of God. In a regular, systematic, comprehensive fashion, Second Peter or Second Timothy, chapter four, verse two: "Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Rebuke, reprove, exhort with great patience and instruction." Again, when do you preach? Always, right? In season, out of the time. Uh, in season, out of season, all of the time. Verse sixteen: He said to him a second time, uh, "Simon, son of John, do you love me?" And he said to him, "Yes, Lord, you know that I love you." He said to him, "Shepherd my sheep." Poimeno is the word. It means act as a shepherd, diligently watch over the spiritual interests of my flock, my people, caring for them, loving for them. Now the Lord's still not through with Peter, verse 17. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you really, do you really even like me? Right? Remember the word has changed. Do you really even like me? And again, Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? So again, perhaps the Lord is even calling into the question that 60% love level of devotion that uh, Peter keeps putting back. So again, three times the Lord asked the same question, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? must have been painful for Peter to remind, be reminded each time he's asked that question, to be reminded of the three times that he denied his Lord. And again, Peter's in grief over his betrayal. Peter's in grief over his betrayal. He's been in grief over the three times the Lord continues to ask the same question of the level of his love and devotion to the Savior. But all three times this uh, interrogation, if you will, uh, is necessary because it's going to lead to Peter's repentance. It's going to lead to his restoration. And Unless the Lord graciously deals with this sin of denial publicly, The matter is going to continue to hang over the head of the disciple and hang over his spirit. And again, it will be an unanswered question with the other men. The great expositor Alexander McLaren explains it like this. He says the threefold denial needed to be obliterated with a threefold confession. Every black mark that had been scored deep on the page by the denial needed to be covered over with the gilding or bright coloring of a triple acknowledgment. And so Peter, thrice having said, I know not him, Jesus, here's the word, with gracious violence, force him to say thrice, thou knowest that I love thee. Isn't that good? It's a great word picture. Gracious violence. The omniscient Lord Jesus Christ knew everything. He knew that Peter loved him because, again, it was Christ who called Peter to himself first. And again, the omniscient Lord Jesus Christ knew that Peter needed to say out loud three times in front of everybody, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. So again, uh, in in the words of McLaren, uh, Jesus, with gracious violence, forces him to say three times, You know that I love you. Now, when we stumble and fall, which we will do, and we do do, we have to stop and realize The only reason we love him is because he loved us what? First. He loved us first. And when we fail him, we know based on the word of God that there's nothing we can do or events in this world or circumstances or situations that can separate ourselves from the gracious love of God found in our Savior, his God's Son, the the dear Lord Jesus Christ, right? There's nothing that separates us from the love. That's Romans 8.39. So we can stop this morning at this moment and praise the Lord that our relationship to Him, our standing to Him before Him does not, is not based on our behavior or our actions or it's not dependent on our faithfulness or our unfaithfulness. But our standing with God, our relationship to Christ is solely based on the faithfulness of the one who in eternity called us and the one who in time came and rescued us taking on our sin, bearing our reproach as our sin-bearer. That's a truth that is just so encouraging. The great reality is none of us are earning our way to heaven. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person of Jesus Christ alone. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Again, there's no unkindness in the questioning by Christ that he repeatedly asks, again, to to, to try to pull uh, uh, the depth of uh, 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 Peter's conscience to awaken him. But again, it's just a demonstration of love because it's by those questions that wound Peter that actually leads to his his, uh, reconciliation, his restoration. Peter really did love the Lord. And again, the Lord knew that because the Lord had called him... Called Peter to himself. And what the Lord is doing for Peter is assuring him of his full forgiveness and his full restoration. The thing that would be cruel to do would be to leave Peter doubting in that position before the Lord. And that way Peter didn't have the full confidence of the Lord's acceptance and forgiveness in his life. And if that was true, then he'd never be used by the Lord. He'd never be used by the Lord. He continued to walk around in self-denial and self-discouragement. That's why a lot of times they say we've got to stop listening to ourselves and we've got to talk to ourselves the truth. When we fail the Lord, we start running down this whole list. I'm no good. I'm terrible. I'm... Okay, look, you're bad enough that the Savior had to incarnate himself and come into the world and save you out of his great grace. Okay, we already know you're bad. I'm bad. You're bad. We're all bad. So let's just put that behind us. Let's stop looking at ourselves and start looking at the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in this gracious restoration of Peter. Because we're all moment by moment in need of God's grace. And nothing can separate us from the love of God through the person of Jesus Christ. Not even our own falling, our failings. Again, the Lord is going to the depth of his being to try to bring him up so he understands the truth. Peter's sin, our sin, have all been forgiven in Christ. The height and depth and the reality of God's love for us has been answered at the cross. That's why we go to Romans 8.1 and He says, there's now what? Therefore, no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. That's a great encouragement of the gospel, the truth of the gospel. Verse 17, said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was aggrieved because he said to him a third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know all things. Again, Peter is appealing to the Lord's divine omniscience. You know that I love you. And he said, tend my sheep. So three questions of the love of Peter for Christ, three questions, or uh, three times uh, Peter declares, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Peter, and then the Lord says to, to uh, uh, Peter three times, tend my sheep or tend my lambs, uh, um, shepherd or feed my sheep, and then tend my sheep. Now the most precious possession that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, possesses here on the earth, the most unfathomable price that was ever paid to secure it, and to secure its redemption, that would be the church. That would be God's people. His sheep. They are not the property of any earthly minister here on the earth. They belong to him. Everybody in the body of Christ belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. So if the Lord Jesus Christ at this moment is publicly turning the care of his most precious possession into the hands of Peter, turning that care into his hands over to him, most certainly, again, at this moment, the Lord has what? Restored Peter. Restored Peter. He's forgiven him. And he's done it publicly so everybody would know. So the restoration of Peter is complete. The commentator Andreas Kostenberger says this, Perhaps at long last Peter has learned that he cannot follow Jesus in his own strength and has realized the hollowness of his affirming his own loyalty in a way that he relies more on his own power of will than on Jesus' enablement. Likewise, he said, we should soundly distrust self-serving pledges of loyalty today that betraying self-reliance rather than a humble awareness of one's own limitation and acting in one's own best interest. Commitment to Christ, faithfulness to Christ always begins at the level of your love for the Savior. And again, sure, love for Christ is one of the simplest tests. Again, of a true affirmation of faith, a real, sincere love for Christ. Do you really love the Savior? Now, also, your love for the Savior is demonstrated in your love and care for God's people. All right? First John four and twenty one says, "This commandment we have from Him: the one who loves God should love His brothers also." So, love for Christ is going to show itself in a love for Christ's people. Peter, tend my lambs. Peter, shepherd my sheep. You know, tend my, tend my sheep. Mine. Christ summed up the entirety of the law with regard with one's relationship to God in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's the greatest and foremost commandment the Lord says. That's what God requires of all those who call themselves Christians, to love God with your all, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind. It's just another way that's saying that we're to love God comprehensively, totally, completely. And then if you genuinely do love Christ, you're going to have a love for those for whom he died. Jesus goes on in verse 39 of Matthew 22 and says, The second one is like this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. A love for the Father, a love for Christ is demonstrated in a love for the people of God. Now the second issue that makes a life of a genuine believer... Uh, that marks the life of a genuine believer is not only his love for Christ and his uh, love for Christ's people, but it's a willingness to sacrifice all for the Savior. It's a willingness to sacrifice all for the Savior. It's a costly love. And that's exactly what Peter's going to hear in verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished, But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. So it's the Lord Jesus that is the one who Peter has just, again, affirmed publicly uh, that he is the omniscient one, the all-knowing one. It's the Lord Jesus that tells Peter at this moment, you're going to die. You're going to die, and you're going to die by way of crucifixion. You're going to die by way of a martyrdom, right? You're going to be taken prisoner. You're going to be hauled off, and then you're going to be crucified. That's exactly what the phrase, you will stretch out your hands, means. In the ancient world, uh, that uh, was a, a euphemism commonly understood for crucifixion. Describing when the victim was arrested and they'd stretch out their hands and they'd be bound with ropes on the crossbeam, and then they'd be forcibly marched to the execution. You say, well, do you have any evidence that that statement you just made is true? Yeah, I do. Thank you. Verse 19, that's how I know that. Verse 19 says, now this, he said, signifying by what kind of death? He would glorify god when he'd spoken this he said to him follow me so peter welcome back to ministry we're glad to have you back uh, Tend my sheep uh, uh, shepherd my sheep tend my lambs and know that sometime in the future when you're old you're going to be arrested and you're going to be martyred by way of crucifixion Ooh. now obviously nobody wants to die but the reality is death is coming for us all Somebody might be tempted to say, well, why in, the Lord, why in the world would the Lord do that? Why in the world would the Lord tell Peter that this is what's going to happen to him? This is not exactly good news. Perhaps it would be better for him not to know. And the answer to that kind of thinking is absolutely not. Again, Peter has just affirmed the fact that the Lord Jesus knows everything. He's the omniscient one. He knows the future. He knows all things, including the time and the death, or the time and the details of, of, of Peter's death. And he knows that Peter, who has just been restored, is going to have, listen, he's going to have a faithful and long ministry. He's going to have a faithful and long ministry because the death that Christ is predicting that he's going to die, that he will glorify the Lord through, is not going to come until Peter is what? An old man. An old man. So that means good news. It's not anytime soon. Now, it's assumed by some commentators that perhaps after this discourse here, that Peter had a 30-year-long ministry after his restoration. So again, part of the Lord's encouragement uh, to Peter, part of the restoration of Peter, is to give him confidence that he will no longer fail Christ like he has done in the past. But by God's power and Peter's confidence, again, not in his own flesh, but in the grace of Christ in his life, he is going to be faithful to the Lord all the way to the very end. And the next time when he's in a situation, he's not going to fail him. The next time when Peter's put in a difficult situation, he's going to be what? He's going to be faithful. When you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you to where you do not wish to go, signifying again by what kind of death he would die or by what kind of death he would glorify God. Now, it's interesting because by the time that John writes the... The text, that's already happened historically. John's the last living apostle. Clement of Rome in 96 AD and others reported Peter's martyrdom. It doesn't, he, Clement doesn't tell us exactly how he was executed. Some uh, ancient sources suggest that Peter was crucified upside down by his own request because he felt unworthy to die, to die in the same manner that the Lord did. Whatever the position, Peter dies as a martyr. Again, by way of crucifixion, because that's exactly what the Lord told him was going to happen in the future. So, when he was young, he was able to do whatever he wanted to do. But as an old man, as a follower of Christ, as a true, faithful follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, he is being informed that his life is going to become difficult. It's going to be unpleasant. But yet, he could face the future. He could face that prospect with great confidence, knowing that, again, he would never deny his Lord and Savior. Rather, he's going to glorify him in his life and he's going to glorify him in his death. And that's exactly what Christ has said all along. It's costly to follow me. Underscoring again the truth of a genuine commitment to Christ may require everything from you, even the ultimate price. Your life. Matthew 10, verse 38, he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. It's a call to die. So someone who is a genuine follower of uh, Christ, loves the Lord Jesus Christ, he's absolutely committed to him. No matter what the cost, he sacrificially lives uh, for him, even if dying is uh, required of him. And then uh, he's focused on obedience, obeying Christ. Again, verse 19. Now he said this again, by what kind of death he would uh, glorify God. And when he spoke of this, right, Maybe in the context, I don't know, maybe the Lord is uh, getting up and he's starting to walk down the, the shore. But in the context, it says, he, the Lord said to Peter, follow me. Now, the call of us in the context of the book, uh, of, uh, in, in, in the context of the ministry of Christ and the interaction with these men, especially Peter, is to follow him. Follow me with a total life, a devotion all, all the way to the end. Follow me. I remember earlier in the ministry, Peter said or Christ said to them, Follow me and I'll make you what? Fishers of men. Again, it's a call to discipleship. It's a call to, to count the cost to follow Christ. Again, Luke 9.23, he was saying to all of them, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. Whoever, wishes to, whoever loses his life for my sake is the one who will save it. So the call to follow Christ is a call to follow him supremely. It's a call to sacrificial living for Christ. It's a call to giving up everything, all of your possessions, all of your relationships, all of your dreams. Uh, Again, uh, even your life. It's a call to a life of obedience. Follow me. The writer of the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 5, 9 says, of Christ, having been made the perfect, right? Having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal life for all those who uh, obey him. For all those who obey him, he's certainly not the source of eternal life for the disobedient. Luke 6, verse 46, Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Talk's cheap, words mean things. The call is high, it's costly. And sadly, there's so many Americans, American Christians, who've grown up in a system of easy believism that has not called them to count the cost, that has told them that they can call Jesus their Savior and not their Lord, they don't have to obey him as Lord. They can call him their their Savior, but they don't have to be obedient to him. And the Lord Jesus himself, to those people, warns. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Here it is, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness or disobedience. That's Matthew chapter 7, 21 through 23. So the Lord said to Peter, follow me. And the Lord says to every genuine professing believer, follow me. Follow me. Love me supremely. Serve me sacrificially. Obey me always. Verse twenty: Peter turning around saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, that would be John, following them. And one who had, uh, the one who had also leaned back on his breast at supper and said, "Lord, uh, who is the one who betrays you?" Uh, verse twenty-one: Peter therefore seeing this, or Peter therefore seeing him, said to Jesus, "Lord, what about this man?" So uh, again, perhaps perhaps uh, evidently the Lord's prediction of Peter's moder- martyrdom causes Peter to stop and think, "Hey, what about my friend John here? What's going to happen to him?" Peter, therefore seeing John, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Verse 22, Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So basically the Lord is saying to Peter, you know, you don't, don't worry about John. Don't worry about John. John and I got our own relationship. I have my own call on his life, which is different than the call that I have on your life, which is true for each and every one of us, right? We're all different individuals called to faith in Christ with different ministry responsibilities. We're all called everywhere we go to, to represent him. Uh, that's our life's calling, but all the callings in our lives are, are not the same. But the one thing that the Lord wants of all genuine believers, all faithful believers, is to follow him. So again, follow me, Peter. Don't worry about John. If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? It's just a, 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 a you follow me. It's just a bit of hyperbole. Again, it's just stating the fact that we're all different individuals, God determines how and how long we're going to serve him, and when each and every one of us is going to be done with his life. The important point is that each and every one of us need to yield our life to Christ in total. Just as Paul says at the top of Romans chapter 12, we are to present our bodies as living and holy sacrifices acceptable to God, which is our spiritual service of worship. He wants all of us. Again, verse 22, Jesus said, If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Again, you don't worry about John. I have my plan for him. I have my purposes for him. But you, Peter, you follow me. Now, again, by the time that John writes the letter, uh, all all the other uh, apostles are dead. History says that that John was the only apostle who didn't suffer a martyr's death, but he did go through much persecution. He's in exile there on the island of Patmos. then in the context of the Gospel of John, John gives a little bit of editorial comment to correct spurious rumors that he would never die until Jesus returns, verse 23. This saying therefore went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Yet he says, Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only if I want him to remain until I come. What is that to you? Which probably should give us a little bit of insight and caution when we start thinking about human traditions even traditions in the church the only valid resource for truth is the word of god the only valid resource for the truth is the word of god every other source should be checked what exactly did god say now he he didn't say that he was not going to die he only said he was it to you if it remains until i come that's not your issue so exactly what did god say versus what did men say And that's, again, an issue that's ongoing. What does the Word of God say? Not to what men say about the Word of God. What do the words say? Words mean something. If the Holy Spirit knows how to communicate, and words mean anything, and God desires to communicate, we probably ought to read what it says. And if the plain meaning of the text makes sense, we probably should look for no other sense. John draws a conclusion to the, to the gospel. He says this, verse fifty or 24, this, the disciples, this is the disciple who bears witness of these things uh, and, and wrote these things. And we, it's more than likely an editorial we, uh, we, again, John referring to himself, we know that his witness is true. So John's just saying, look, here at the end of the gospel, everything I've told you is true. It's the work of God. It's the word of God. Everything that I've written is truthful. And again, I think John seems to write these words here at the end to assure his readers of the gospel they have no reason whatsoever to doubt its content. Everything he's written is faithful. Everything he's written is truthful concerning the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and his work. Everything that he reported, everything that he said he did in his ministry and life, from the perspective from which John writes and the perspective of John is to show the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Everything he said is true. Because that's been his purpose all along, right? Back up there in John, verse 31. These things have been written that you may what believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing you might have what? Life in his name. So everything that John wrote about the life of Jesus Christ is true. But he didn't write everything about Jesus that could be said. Verse 25. There are also many other things which Jesus did. Which, if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books which are written. Uh, Perhaps another uh, bit of hyperbole. Who knows? It's just an affirmation, I think, of the fact of the majesty and the excellency of the person of Jesus Christ. Who can plumb the depths of the marvelous person of Jesus Christ? The more we study, the more we know. The more we study, the more we know, the more we want to know. I told you a couple weeks back that now that i finished the book of John, I want to go back and start all over again because now I know what to look for. So to to put your minds at ease, I'm not going to do that. (laughs) But now that we've gone through the book, you can go back and study on your own. And you can see the Lord Jesus Christ. And hopefully the more you study, the more you know him, the more you're going to grow in your love for him. The one who gave himself for us. The one whom the Father sent into this world out of his tremendous love, his great love for a rebellious planet made up of uh, rebellious individuals like you and me. The one who said, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The one who said, greater love has no one than this that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. So love, sacrifice, and obedience, those are the marks of a genuine believer of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we are so thankful for allowing us to meet this morning and to study your word. And we thank you for much, so much for our great study in this wonderful gospel that has again has been written so that we might know the fact that you, uh, Jesus, is the Christ. He is your dear son. Believing upon him, we might have eternal life. Everlasting life in his name. Because of your great love, your great mercy, your great kindness in our life. Help us to walk in love. Help us to live sacrificially. Help us to live in obedience to you always. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.